Thank you, John. We are in the Gospel of Mark. If you'd like to turn to chapter 14, our study begins there this morning. It is the springtime of the year 30 A.D., and what we have here in Mark 14 is a plot by the religious leaders to arrest and kill Jesus, though they know he's guilty of no crime. I can't even imagine what level of hypocrisy that is, that you would be a minister, that you would be a priest, that you would be a Levite, and look forward to the coming of the Messiah your entire life, and when he comes, your bosses want to kill him and crucify him. Presided over the Sanhedrin was a man by the name of Caiaphas, who was a Sadducee who hated all of the Bible except the first five books of Moses. So as you might imagine, they were a legalistic people, and he could twist and shape the law into saying anything he wanted. To, he could use it as an excuse to even, in this case, commit murder. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 voting members. The 71st member was the high priest himself who always broke the tie. But all of them, nearly to a man, despised Jesus because he was doing things they could not. They wanted deliverance from Rome. What they got was deliverance from their sins. But the arrogant and the prideful religious leaders thought, well, who are you to call me a sinner? It is amazing that nobody likes that title today, and least of all out in the world. The world will confess to falling short, not being perfect, but they hate, they hate the label sinner. And yet Jesus uses it often. It is a word found replete throughout the Bible. And the need of the sinner is repentance. The proud will always resist Christ. The humble of heart will always embrace him because they know the depth of their need. Caiaphas was one of the most prideful men ever to sit in the office of high priest and willing at this point to commit murder. And he knew exactly what he was doing. John eleven fifty three tells us that he, he, they were looking for any excuse at all to murder who they knew to be an innocent man. They hated Jesus because he was more popular than they were. He was able to do miracles, and they couldn't. He was able to feed the hungry, and they couldn't or wouldn't. He could, Jesus could heal. He could raise the dead. They could do none of the above and resented it every time he did because it showed their impotency. Religion has no power at all. It's only to the extent that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you know him, that you've surrendered your life to him, that there is any power in your life whatsoever. Power to do miracles, power to live a miraculous life. They had planned on taking Jesus any time except Passover. They had to keep up their religious appearances. It was a busy time of the year as pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire would would come to town annually. There perhaps were millions of people in attendance at this one. There was always this messianic fever that swept through the crowds. There was always riots and revolts and, and brush-ups with the Romans that were there in attendance waiting for people to just get out of line. And while they didn't want to take him on Passover... It was the plan of God that Jesus be the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus had to die on Passover. And it is interesting to me how God orchestrates all of these things. They moved up their timeline, the Pharisees did, the Sadducees, the whole of the Sanhedrin, when they had an unsolicited person come to them that's saying, I'll give you Jesus. They, they hadn't even asked any of the 12 disciples, would you betray your master? They assumed none would. Judas came of his own free will and accord and said, I'll give him up to you if the price is right. Judas Iscariot. And so it allowed them to take Jesus quietly, privately, in the middle of the night like all sin tends to take place. This is God's predetermined plan for the Lamb of God to be slain at Passover, in accordance with Scripture. Why did Jesus have to die? He didn't. He chose to die so that you and I might be forgiven our sins. He made the choice. I can't even imagine how much love it takes to have dwelt in heaven for eternity past 
and, but you know the ultimate plan of, of your heavenly Father is to come down to earth to be brutalized, rejected, and beaten, and then ultimately crucified and killed. Jesus didn't have to come. Satan had offered him a thousand-year kingdom without the cross. Jesus wasn't interested in a kingdom for a kingdom's sake. He was interested in mankind being reconciled to his heavenly Father. Sin is what stands in the way between the people of God and the God who created them. I don't know if you know God today. I'm not asking if you were ever baptized or joined a church. That's irrelevant. That has nothing to do with the question. Are you saved? Have you acknowledged Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God who died on the cross to pay for your sins? Have you made it personal? Because if it's not personal, it's just religion. You're a part of those that cry out, crucify him, crucify him. You serve him or you crucify him, but there is no in-between. There's no fence to be straddled. Jesus said, if you are not for me actively, proactively, then you are, in fact, against me. If you're not doing the Father's will, you're doing Satan's will, but choose you this day whom you will serve. What we're going to see in chapter 14 is people making a variety of decisions of their own free will and choice, some for Jesus and some against Jesus. Where do you stand? Where do you stand? It's easy to say, I'm a Christian. But do you know him? Do you acknowledge him before men? Does your lifestyle reflect the fact that you have given your heart and life and soul and mind to the lordship of Jesus Christ? If somebody were to look at your life, would they come to the conclusion you're a Christian or just somebody who is a Sunday go to church once in a while and call yourself a Christian person? One's a fake. One's a real Christian. But you have the opportunity today to figure out, to find out whether you're the real deal, whether you are, in fact, a Christian, or you're just a religious person that comes to church when it's convenient, but your life is not given to him, nor your heart. The one command of the Old Testament that was preeminent in the minds of the Jews was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. There's not any alternative position. If we are lukewarm Christians, Jesus says they will be vomited out of his mouth in the book of Revelation. You'd rather be dead than lukewarm. Jesus said, I wish that you were hot or cold. That way you'd know you need to change. But to be lukewarm, you're like the toad in the boiling pot that's slow, slowly brought up and never realizes it's going to give up its life. Things happen slowly. These festivals, all of the Jewish festivals, foreshadowed the work and ministry of Jesus. You'll remember that he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus fulfills all of this Old Testament typology. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What is the purpose of the law? To convict you and I of sin. Now, if you're a self-justifying person, you just made the excuse in your mind, well, I'm trying to keep the Ten Commandments, bro. A, no, you're not. B, you haven't. The standard of the law was perfection. Have you been perfect from the womb to the tomb? Are you so arrogant that you would say, I have never committed one single sin from there? That's what the law demanded. If you don't have that perfection, if you've broken the law in just one regard, James says you're guilty of breaking the entire law. In other words, you're bound for hell. Thus, every single person on the planet needs Jesus. There is no other way to be saved. Some people say, well, what about Buddha? What about Muhammad? I mean, there's a lot of other religions out there, demonic deceptions. Satan can adorn himself as an angel of light. He's in the business of deception, and he'd rather have you believe in a marshmallow than Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. He'd have you bow down to anything, any statue, any image, 
as a, looking for salvation. He doesn't want you looking to Jesus. He did everything he could to kill Jesus, but death couldn't hold him. The tomb couldn't hold him. He rose from the dead. If you believe that in your heart, if you've given him all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then you're saved. If you haven't, you're not. It's just that black and white. I like the fact, from an engine, old engineer standpoint, it's just black and white. There's no in-between. There's no in-between at all. I've done some machine work over uh, the course of my life and known other machinists and stuff, and people say, well, it's pretty close. Machinist never says it's pretty close. It either is on the money or it's not. But there's no in between. That's like saying, well, I'm st- you're either six foot tall or you're not six foot tall. But you're, it's not, I'm close to six foot tall. I hope to be six foot tall. No, you either are or you aren't. There's not an in between. And yet when it comes to matters of eternal security, we like to think that there's, some, there's a little bit of le- leeway in here. I can keep up my sin and still go to heaven. Hmm. Got chapter and verse for that? You got chapter and verse that says, I as a Christian can sin with impunity? Or I can live a shabby lifestyle and it's okay with God? None of the above is true. This is a chapter that demands accountability because hard questions are asked of people. They have to make hard decisions. Festivals of Passover. It was fulfilled in Christ as our Passover lamb. The Testament, the Old Testament talks about Pentecost, the Greek for 50 days, which happened after Passover. It was the feast of first fruits, the first of the grain that was offered to God. Uh, you weren't allowed to buy or sell anything until the first fruits of your harvest, whether it was olives, whether it was grapes, whether it was wine, whether or it was cattle, or whatever. The first fruits were always offered to God. And you'll remember the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. So I believe that that, that Old Testament festival has been fulfilled as well. What hasn't been? The Festival of Tabernacles. The Festival of Tabernacles. Historically, the Jews used it to celebrate God's provision for the nation of Israel in its wilderness wanderings back in, in the book of Exodus and then coming into the Promised Land. But its ultimate fulfillment has not yet been realized. One of the aspects of tabernacles, because they built themselves these temporary booths and shelters, was to remind themselves that this life is temporary. Our wilderness wanderings, they're temporary. When does it reach its fulfillment? When Jesus establishes his kingdom. So my prayer is, come Lord Jesus. (laughs) Come Lord Jesus. That's the event that will fulfill the typology we read about in the book of Tabernacles. This is our wilderness experience. Right here, right now, this is where our faith is tested. This is where bad things happen to good people, but we lean on the promise of God that says all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to His purposes. If you don't love God, that promise doesn't apply to you, of course. Your choice. Can I tell you, God will always honor whatever choice you make. To live for him or not. He'll honor whatever choice you make. You choose not to make a decision to surrender your entire being and life, hopes, dreams, and aspirations to Jesus Christ. He'll say, I'm fine with that. That place is reserved uh, for those that don't know the Lord. That place is called hell. It is a place where they said, I don't want God in my life. And God says, fine, I'll put you in a place where I'm not. You don't want me in your life. I'll make sure that I'll never be in your life. I'll do exactly as you promised. Choose you this day whom you will serve. The text says there, starting in verse 1, now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover happened first, the uh, seven-day festival followed of unleavened bread, were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. I can't fathom that hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is saying you're a holy man but not being holy. Hypocrisy is saying I'm a Christian, but not acting like a Christian. Saying I serve the Lord, but in fact I serve myself. Hypocrisy. I find it one of the most reprehensible things in all of Scripture. God wants you to be honest with Him, and He wants you to be honest about who you are, who you really are. When the Christian commits sin, confess it. 
repent of it. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you afresh so that we don't commit that sin again. But all have sinned and fallen short the glory of God. So please don't take offense when I say you are a sinner. Didn't start with me. Jesus said that. We are all sinners. Don't run from that title. Embrace it because sinners need a Savior. That's how much God loves us, that He was willing to send His own Son to be brutalized and beaten, killed, and raised from the dead so that you and I might be saved. Dearest friends, please, in Jesus' name, act like you're a Christian, if indeed you are a Christian these last days. Where do you find the strength to say no to a sinful, fallen world that wants to smother you? Where do you get the strength? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You should be reading your Bible daily. Well, it's hard for me to understand. Get a dumber version. There's, there's our readable versions out there for everybody. If you don't read at all, have somebody read. There's audio tapes. <laughs> well, I'm blind. I can't even see. They got Braille Bibles. There's no excuse for us not being in the Word of God regularly, daily. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You hear from God by being in the only book He ever wrote. You hear from God when you pray and you seek His face and you surrender afresh. When you make your intercessions and your prayers and your petitions, hear that still small voice in your heart of hearts that's saying, take this way or take that way, or zip the lip or head in this direction. They wanted to arrest him and kill him. I want no hypocrisy in my life. Just write that down somewhere in your notes if you're a note taker. Verse 1, tolerate no hypocrisy in your life. We all struggle on a three-fronted battle. This is spiritual warfare at its essence. I would have no trouble with sin at all if it wasn't for my old nature. That's what is still temptable in you and I. I'd have no problem at all if Satan wasn't the God of this world tempting me to sin constantly. The flesh, Satan, the world around us that doesn't know God and is trying its level best to jam its moral values down your throat. Have you noticed that? Everywhere you turn, you can't go to the Disney Channel, for crying out loud, without men kissing men and ladies kissing ladies. You go, what? What, is Disney? Really? I bet the old man is rolling over in his grave. Good grief. Did you ever see Mickey kissing another Mickey Mouse in, in the 1950s? I mean, please. And yet we've, we're being pressured today to adopt that as okay. They don't want you to think it's okay. They want you to live their filthy lifestyle. It is a choice. If there is a message title to this to this morning, it is the choices we make. Would you agree that the Sanhedrin, these, these religious leaders wanting to crucify Jesus, would you agree they have made a bad choice? It was their choice. God didn't force them to do this. Why do we sin? Why do they sin? Why do you sin? Because you choose to. It was a volitional choice. I could be wrong. Maybe Satan showed up in your bedroom and put a gun to your head and said, I'll pull the trigger if you don't sin. Responsibility. Responsibility. With much privilege comes much responsibility. That's where we're at today. I know there is a tsunami attack against your moral values. The legalization of drugs, it was never about medical marijuana. They couldn't have cared less. That was only a foot in the door so they could widen the breach. And now they sell marijuana 100 or 500 feet away from public schools, for crying out loud. It's a gateway drug. Don't say it's not. You ask a heroin addict or somebody strung out on black tar heroin or, or something. Like, okay, what's the first drug you tried? They're always going to say marijuana. 
They didn't say penicillin. They didn't say aspirin. And yet we convince ourselves that the way of the world is okay. It is not. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end it leads to death, the proverb says. So I want to think about the way I walk, the way I hold myself, the way I conduct myself. I do not want to participate in the sins of the world just because they no longer call them sins. What does God's Word say? This will always be your firm anchor. Always go back to it time and time and time again. The festival is just a couple of days away, and the teachers are looking for some sly way to kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. So they care more about the people than they do God. They'll commit murder. Oh, that's okay, but boy, we're kind of afraid of what the people might do. What hypocrisy. Verse 3, while he was in Bethany, just a short ways outside of the Temple Mount area, reclining at the table in the home of a man named Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, and she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Simon the leper obviously is not a leper anymore, or he wouldn't have had this gala event at his house. Obviously a man who has been healed of leprosy. And then in this account, an unnamed woman with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume comes in. Very expensive perfume made of pure nard. Hmm. Other gospels tell us this is that, that this is Martha, that she has broken open this alabaster jar. She is a servant. She serves. That's what she does. That's, that's who she is, a servant. Mary had previously been seen at Jesus' feet while Martha had fretfully busied herself in, in the kitchen. You'll remember in Luke 10, it said, as Jesus and the disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home up to him because a friend of mine... Uh, uh, on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And <clears throat> she had a sister called Martha who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Hmm. That's interesting. Then she comes out and decides upon to take upon herself to rebuke Jesus. Whoa. Feel free to rebuke a lot of people in his life, but I think it's a foolish person indeed that rebukes Jesus. She began to be, rebuke Jesus. Don't you care? I remember the disciples said that to Jesus when their boat was getting swamped with water on the Lake of Galilee. Jesus cares. Can I tell you this? Just Jesus cares. Don't ever get up in his grill and say, don't you care? He's probably looking at, don't you pray? Don't you ask? Where's your faith? I mean, if Jesus talked to you like you talked to him, maybe you're in for some spankings. I don't, I don't know exactly what he has in store for you, but I know that it is not wise uh, to ask Jesus if he cares. Don't say stupid stuff to Jesus. Of course he cares. Uh, but Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, she had the better place than her sister Martha. Some of us just hide behind busyness, don't we? Mm. Martha, busy and fretful in the kitchen. Now, maybe she had the gift of cooking. That's fine. I personally have the gift of eating. My wife, my wife has the gift of cooking, and I praise God in heaven for it. She's always busy in the kitchen. But I'll tell you what, I don't want to leave her in the kitchen all by herself to do everything and then expect her to clean up afterwards. You know, maybe we ought to help out, you know? But my wife is, is like, like Mary, like Martha, a servant. Waiting on the Lord. Don't hide behind the excuse of busy. Uh, Pastor Jim, you don't know how busy my I don't have time to read the Bible. I don't have time to pray. Oh, I got eight hours a day to watch television, mind you, but no, I don't, I don't have enough time to, to read the Bible or pray or go to church. <clears throat> Sometimes we don't even have an excuse. You know, if a pastor were to ask you, for instance, when's the last time you shared your faith with somebody? All I hear is crickets. 
Some people don't have an excuse for why they don't. What's your excuse? I mean, just think, we could change El Paso County in a single generation if every one of us just won one person to the Lord a year, and then that person won one person to the Lord, and then that person won. We could have this entire county evangelized in, in, in no time at all. Just one person a year. The disciples were doing it on a daily basis. Jesus was doing it on a daily basis. You share, not all will accept, but they need to have an opportunity to hear, to hear. Verse 3 tells us this very expensive perfume. It was nard. They extracted the oil from a plant found in India. That's how expensive this stuff was. Imagine taking that from, by camel all the way from India, dragging it all the way back home. I mean, that's a lifetime's treasure right there in a, in a, in a jar. But it, it expresses how, how deep her devotion was to Jesus. And it was hers to anoint the guest of honor. You know, so she, is, she broke open the jar, it says in verse 3, poured out the perfume on his head. And some of those present were saying indignantly one to another, <clears throat> excuse me, why this waste of perfume? Could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. You know, when Jesus is in the room, leave the rebuking to him. Okay? Leave the rebuking to him. I know you probably, some of you may feel, well, Pastor Jimmy, you don't understand. I have the spiritual gift of rebuking. <clears throat> that is not a spiritual gift. It is the deed of your flesh. Boy, just, I hope you're not a rebuking person. I read also in the Proverbs this past week that uh, a wise person is not easily offended, and love overlooks an offense. Stop with the rebuking thing. In the New Testament, we're told, look at on others with, in humility as better than yourself. I mean, that's tough for the prideful person. That's tough for the prideful person to do. What we're not told in here that's found in alternative passages in Matthew and and Mark. Do you know who said this? What a waste of perfume. Could you know who said that? Judas Iscariot. John's gospel tells us that he was the keeper of the purse and would often help himself to the money inside the purse. So he wasn't thinking of, of any social cause here. He's saying, we could have sold this for a lot of money and I could have picked the pocket from the... the 12's treasury here. <clears throat> That's what he wanted. So he takes it upon himself to sound religious, sound pious, yet his motives are entirely wrong. I just read in my Bible yesterday, the Lord weighs the motives of the heart. The Lord knows your heart and what your motives are for the things that you do. That money should have been given to the poor. Mm-hmm. Leave her alone, Jesus said in verse 6. In the Greek, it's pretty harsh. It's a, it's a command in the Greek. You could put an exclamation point behind that and say, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. That's all she has, man. And she's poured it, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And we've been reading it for 2,000 years since. What a gracious act. What's it cost you? What have you given Jesus, what have you given him control over in your life? What have you given over to him? What have you given up for him? Because you know that it's not spiritually profitable for you anymore. What have you given up? What has it cost you personally? Jesus seemed to indicate the cost of discipleship is it's going to cost you everything. 
all of your dreams, goals, hopes, aspirations, your life, everything. I mean, quite frankly, doesn't he own it anyway? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Everything I have has been a gift from God. The ability to work has been a gift from God. I want to be a humble servant before the Lord. Because we had read last week in Mark 13 that hard times are coming. We're days of distress unequaled from the beginning of time. It is on the near horizon. So in verse 10 then, it says, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. Why? Jesus just rebuked him, and I'm done with the Lord rebuking me. I'm done with the Lord convicting me of my sin. I'm tired of God constantly wanting my attention and my stuff. I'm, I'm just tired of letting God be God. I want to be God for a while. I want to decide my own outcome. I'm sure that Judas Iscariot, despite the fact that he had done miracles, I mean, when Jesus sent out the 12, they raised the dead, they cast out demons, they healed every sickness and disease, it said. Judas Iscariot did that. He knew that that power had been delegated by God to him. He saw the miracles of what Jesus could do and imbue his people with. But what Judas couldn't handle was the pride. And in his pride, he couldn't handle rebuke or correction. There are some of you here this morning that despise correction, even when you're wrong. Proverbs call that person a fool. Only a fool fails to heed correction. And yet I have had no shortage of instances where I have had to correct or reprove somebody in the congregation. And I can tell you, 90% of the time it's not received. The problem is pride. Die to pride. Die to pride at your earliest opportunity, please. I'm not talking about, well, I'm proud of my kids. That's not the pride we're talking about. It's the pride that keeps you from God. It's the pride that keeps you from acknowledging that you're a sinner or that you eat too much or you drink too much or you or excess in this area or another. Receive the correction of Scripture, and that's why I want you in it often. God will tell you what He expects of you. You don't have to take my word for it. Search it out yourself. So Judas then, unsolicited, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them, and they were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. Thirty pieces of silver, the price of a gored slave in the Old Testament, a slave that had been gored by an ox. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. The Sanhedrin made their choice. The lady that anointed Jesus made her choice. Judas Iscariot has made his choice. Just because Jesus confronted him often that he was the betrayer doesn't mean that he had to betray Jesus. He chose to. Free will and choice. So Judas has made this decision. Maybe... It was because Satan entered his heart. Maybe Satan entered his heart because the Holy Spirit wasn't there. Maybe Satan could enter his heart because he hadn't given his heart to Christ. Maybe he didn't think that Jesus was acting appropriately. Maybe he wanted a military deliverance from Rome, and Jesus came to forgive sins, and he didn't want any part of that. Oh, make us kings and priests with you, Jesus. That's cool. We'll rule and reign with you. That's cool. We want you to kick Rome out of town, but I don't want you to mess with my sins. And it bothers me that Judas Iscariot was so concerned that his actions would be seen as noble and religious. Well, we could have sold this, made a lot of money, and fed the poor. Yeah, that's not what he was thinking at all. Perhaps he was thinking that he could force Jesus to establish his kingdom. Perhaps his messianic expectations of Jesus were not met, but more likely he chafed under that public rebuke 
that John chapter 12 records for us. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus' rebuke to him was clear. Leave her alone. He replied, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you. You will not always have me. Most of you might react exactly the same at rebuke. But can I tell you this? Public sin demands a public rebuke. Look up in a concordance sometime that word rebuke. It's used throughout the Old and New Testament. Sometimes God has to rebuke his people because they don't listen. It's like when you were raising kids. I mean, those of you that have raised kids, think back. You know, when they were, oh, I don't know, say 13, 14, 15, 16, anywhere pretty much between 13 and 35, there is this period of time in there where you have found it sometimes difficult to get their attention. Am I correct? So what, what do you do? You know, you call them. I can, I can hear my grandmother's voice in my head. Jimmy, I'm playing. I'm going to pretend that I didn't hear that. Jimmy, well, although the dead can hear it, I'm going to pretend that I didn't. And I'm going to continue playing with my little army, plastic army men. And, and uh, boy, I'll tell you what, when she had to come in the third time, it was with a wooden spoon in her hand, and she was chasing Jimmy around the living room. Spanking his little bottom, you know. Don't make God turn up his voice. Listen for that still, small voice of correction. And that way you don't have to fear the really loud and hurtful voice of rebuke. Just let him guide you. I mean, once your life is surrendered to him, it's like going down a lazy river ride on an inner tube. It's just so peaceful because you're not fighting God. It's peaceful because you're not fighting God. You do things according to his word. He gives you guidance and direction. You pray and he, you cast all of your burdens upon him who cares so much for you, and he gives you peace. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. For some of you, that's your greatest need this morning. Ask. Ask. It'll be given you. Well, the text continues on verse 12 of Mark 14. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water. That was usually done by the women. So this would have been unusual. I mean, you're thinking, well, who, everybody in the city is carrying a water jar. No, 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 no. Look for a man that's carrying a water jar. Uh, he'll meet you. Follow him. Stay, and then say to the owner of the house that, that he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room that, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So these preparations are made during the daylight hours on Thursday, the 14th of Nisan. The lambs were customarily sacrificed in the afternoon in preparation for the Passover supper that began at sundown. Uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke leave no doubt whatsoever that this, was, this last supper is the Passover meal itself. And then John's gospel inserts something really interesting. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Yesterday, I went to see my grandson's last baseball game of the season over there in, in Village 7 in a park over there. The mud was unbelievable. You could sink up to your knees in that stuff if you stand there long enough. And I was amazed, you know. But as the game was over and we were getting ready to go home, you know, I looked down at my, my muddy shoes and I thought, wouldn't it be nice if I had a slave that could wash my shoes for me uh, before I get in my wife's car and she doesn't have to hit me with the newspaper or the umbrella? Wouldn't it be nice? But no, we don't have people that want to. If I'd have asked anybody in the crowd, would, hey, you mind, Luke, would you mind, you know, wiping off my dirty, muddy feet? 
Luke could go, <laughs> no, but if you want to buy me coffee at Dutch Brothers, that'd be fine. <laughs> Jesus did something that nobody else wanted to do. Walking through dirt streets in nothing but open-toed sandals, you know, Jesus starts washing their feet. Talk about self-sacrificing humility. Get this. Jesus Christ washed Judas Iscariot's feet. Now, if you love me to death, maybe you want to wash my feet. But if you're my mortal enemy and want to kill me, the last thing in the world you would want to do is wash my feet. That's what Jesus does. He washes the feet of his betrayer. That is amazing. Why did he do that? I'd have kind of, I'd have thought, I'd have nudged Jesus, you know, oh, he's a bad one. You don't want to do that. You don't want to want, skip him. <laughs> what I'm really saying is I wouldn't wash his feet in a million years with a gun to my head. Jesus loved him. And even, I think he washed his feet hoping that he would repent. It's God's loving kindness that leads us to repentance. I see throughout this entire chapter in the other gospel accounts, and it's everything Jesus did was trying to get Judas Iscariot to change his mind. Think rightly about who Jesus is. Embrace him as Lord, Son of God, and Son of Man. Turn your life over to him. So Jesus gave Judas Iscariot time after time after time and opportunity after opportunity to repent of his sins that he never did. How many times has Jesus done the same for you and I? For his forgiveness, time after time when we deserve judgment, he was gracious to us instead. His loving kindness leads us to repentance. The last blessing you received from God was so that you might acknowledge him as God and turn your life over to him. Your choice. In light of the reality of heaven and hell, I encourage you to choose wisely. Choose wisely. Judas had been sent out with the 12 healed every disease, sickness raised the dead, cast out demons, and then chooses to betray the king of glory. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable to me. So Jesus isn't done with Judas Iscariot. His love knows no bounds. Verse 16, so the disciples left, went into the city, found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve, and while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you twelve will betray me, one who is eating with me. I'm sure they're looking at each other going, I wonder who that is. We're searching their own hearts. I'd never do that. I could never betray Jesus. The confrontation allows Judas to repent, but he chooses not to. In John 13 and verse 18, Jesus gave him another chance to repent. One of you is going to betray me. All the time, he knew it was him. And yet his own friends would betray him in fulfillment of Psalm 41 and verse 9, the prophecy found there. Another mention of his betrayal in John 13, 21. Finally, he whispers in Judas Iscariot's ear, that which you've already decided to do, go out and do quickly. And John's gospel says, and he went out into the dark of night. Boy, what a dreadful picture of sin. Not what you and I want to do at all. In verse 19 says, they were saddened and one by one said to him, surely not I, Lord. John's gospel tells us that even Judas Iscariot asked Jesus, Lord, certainly not I. And Jesus answered back, you're the one. Giving him one more opportunity. I mean, how can you look into the eyes of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? How can you look in those eyes and say, Me? No, not me. And then Jesus says, yeah, it's you. And you decide I'm going to do it anyway? It's beyond the pale. 
Verse 20, it's one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread in the bowl with me. They would take the bread and often dip it in these fruit sauces and meat sauces. The Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. He's saying this out loud, hoping that Judas Iscariot repents. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Wow. Judas, this will cost you your eternal Eternal damnation. Are you really willing to pay that price? Unreal. While they were reading bread, verse 22, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. These words sound familiar because Paul quotes them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as he reminds the church in Greece to celebrate the Lord's Supper and that this is what those elements represent. This is the blood, verse 24, or excuse me, verse 23, then he took the cup, gave thanks, gave thanks. He knew it symbolized his own blood about to be shed, and yet he gave thanks. What's to give thanks for? That God, through his blood being shed, would save many. That's why he gave thanks. Thank you for the salvation of millions, billions, Lord. And he offered it to his disciples. They all drank from it, a common cup. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. We have a covenant relationship with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. He'll be drinking it with you and I. That to me is a glorious, a glorious privilege. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And we'll leave off there this morning at verse uh, 20, the end of verse 26. There is more uh, in this. I want you to read the rest of the chapter in preparation for next week's study. But look at the choices people make in the following verses. And what choices have you made in regard to these very same issues? Life is a series of choices, and the Bible encourages us to to choose God's path for us. Choose right, not wrong. I remember in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, you, you see the very best snapshot of the church at its best, at its youngest, when Peter had preached his first sermon ever with no notes, a three-minute sermon, 3,000 people get saved and turn their lives over to Christ. It says what follows that is there were four things that these 3,000 new converts devoted themselves for. And I want to ask you, have you devoted yourself to these same four things? You'll want to write them down if you're not familiar with them or look them up in Acts 2 and verse 41 and 42. Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to four things. First of all, the apostles' teaching. That's the New Testament. We've got it. This is what the apostles taught, the Bible, the words of Jesus. Secondly, they devoted themselves to the fellowship, like right now like you're doing right now, like when we get together in each other's homes. They devoted themselves to That means they didn't make a lot of excuses why they were never in fellowship. They just did it. Thirdly, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, which is the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's so important, which is why we do it monthly in this church. I didn't want to do it more often than that because it might become too much of a ritual to you. We did it every week or every day or something like that. I wanted to be special. So we do it once a month, though Scripture does not tell us how often to do it. It says, in as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Fourthly, the church devoted themselves to prayer, corporate prayer and individual prayer, and prayer between families. I encourage you to devote yourself to the same four things that made the early church strong. It'll help you make better decisions. Excuse me, Judas' betrayal of Jesus... uh, It strikes me as callous and cowardly. And as soon as I said those words, God asked me, have you ever been callous and cowardly? It's easy for us to be hard on Judas Iscariot, isn't it? Put yourself in his place. 
Have you ever betrayed Christ by something you said, a lifestyle that you lived, a sin that you committed? Have you betrayed Christ over the issue of pride? Have you refused to receive his rebuke or his correction when it was necessary and called for? Have I ever betrayed him in word, thought, or deed? If so, then I need to repent. Peter's predicted denial that will come later in next week's study reminds me of the time that I've done the same thing, time that I need to repent. Repentance will help you to continue walk in humility. Otherwise, pride will divide this church or any other. You can't give pride an inch. It'll take a mile. Jesus' prediction of his disciples in this same chapter, all falling away, reminds me how easy it is for us to do that today. All you have to do to fall away from Jesus is nothing. Don't read. Don't pray. Don't go to church. Don't fellowship. So easy to do that. We've covered a lot of history this morning. And I, but I don't want you to look at the Bible as just a history book. It's certainly, it is a historical document before us, but I'd rather you see it as a divine revelation written by God to you personally. To you personally. Take Pastor Jim out of the equation. This book is all between you and God. Jesus died so that you might have intimacy in your relationship with God, but that too is up to you. Make a choice. I tell you what, Jesus is coming soon. The world events going on around us <laughs> show us the nearness of the hour. When God reveals himself to you, then you have a choice to make. Will I accept it or will I reject it? Do I do anything? that is displeasing to the Lord? Is there anything that I do to the point of excess? Do I lead a compromised life, or do I allow the Lord to search me and try me? Like David said, Lord, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way within me. That's asking the Lord to do the work of introspection. So if you will stand with me this morning, I'd like you to pray the same prayer. Just close your eyes and say, Lord, if there is any wicked way within me, I confess it as sin and ask that you purge it from my life. If I have, if I have done anything to the point of excess, if I have taken it upon myself to be the rebuker of everybody else or everyone else's critic, forgive me. If I've been prideful, Lord, about anything, I confess that to you as sin and ask that you make me a humble man or woman or child after your own heart. Forgive us our sins, Heavenly Father. I lift up this precious congregation to you that I love. I love so much, Lord. And I desire the very best for them, and I know that's you. So I pray that here and now they would give you once again all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength, that they would surrender everything to you, that they would walk away from compromised lives, that they would stop compromising actions or words that leave their lips that don't please you. Show us what the moral cesspool of the world is really about and teach us not to imbibe in its poisonous drink. I don't want to think like the world. I don't want to act like the world. They don't know you, Lord. Help us to act. Help us to act like we do know you and make you proud. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and all that you've done for us, Father. In Jesus' name.